Welcome to Your Injury Lawyer Podcast. We have a special guest today. His name is Sean Dominic with Dominic Cunningham and Yaffa Law Firm. Sean is presently the president of the American Association of Justice. Thank you very much for joining us. Sean, thanks for joining Your Injury Lawyer Podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came from, how you became a lawyer, where you grew up? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I was actually born and raised in Miami. I'm a native Floridian. Uh, Backland Baptist Hospital was just one single small building and Kendall Drive ended at the Palmetto Expressway. So it's, uh, I've been here a long time and the tallest building you could see anywhere in Florida was uh, the courthouse in Miami. And of course, now that has changed so much. Uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer. That was all I ever remember wanting to be. I don't know why that is, but it's all I ever wanted to be. Uh, and so fortunately, here I am getting to live my dream. At what age do you remember first wanting to become a lawyer or being introduced to being a lawyer or what a lawyer was? Do you have any memory of that? Yeah, as, as far back as I can remember, so seven or eight years old, that was what I wanted to be. And uh, I, like I said, I don't know why. I don't know whether I was watching Perry Mason on TV or something like that, what it was that struck me uh, to want to do it. I didn't have family members that are lawyers. Uh, I'm the first one in our family that went to law school. And so uh, it was just somehow, some way, what my calling was from the very beginning. And of course, that got to be funny because when I went off to college and they said, you have to have a major, and I said, a major? I don't need a major. I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> so they kind of fixed me of that. So you went to high school in Miami and then went to the University of Florida. I did. I did. I went to Palmetto High School, which gave us Jeff Bezos and now Katanji Brown-Jackson. So a uh, wonderful public high school in South Florida. And then uh, went to the University of Florida for undergrad and went to the University of Florida for law school, so a double gator. So growing up, you want to be a lawyer. Do you know what kind of lawyer you wanted to be when you were growing up? No, that that kind of came later. I didn't, I didn't really have a good understanding of the depth and the breadth of what the practice of law uh, meant. And uh, it was only really once I got into law school that the calling to be a trial lawyer came to me. Did you do any public speaking growing up? Were you in the debate club? or anything like that in high school or maybe college? I did, I did. I did debating and did public speaking. And then I always had jobs that required me to speak to the public. I grew up waiting tables. And I don't know if you've ever done that, but you learn to interact with people on a daily basis of all types of people, people who are uh, happy to be there, people who are demanding, all sorts of type types of people. I really think that's a great preparation to be able to stand up in front of a, of a jury of strangers and be able to talk to them. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your law school experience? Were you law review, moot court? Did you do a lot of public speaking? <laughs> law review, what's that? <laughs> no, 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 not, a, not on law review. Um, but I was on moot court and on the trial team uh, back in, in law school and really enjoyed that experience. Really what was, it, it was really interesting. At one point I thought I wanted to do sports law. And so after my first year of law school, I had a job lined up with a sports agent from Orlando. And then two weeks before uh, the summer started, his law firm broke up. So there went my clerkship. And so uh, things changed rapidly. I had to, I'd already rented a place in Orlando, so I had to work in Orlando. And so I did that that summer with an insurance defense law firm. And then the next summer, uh, my good friend, Rich Newsom, uh, who was in law school with me, had suggested about looking at a firm in, in Palm Beach called uh, Cersei Denny. 
And so I was fortunate enough uh, to get a job clerking there. And then what was really transformative uh, during that summer period was that Chris Searcy was in a, a summer long trial and I got to be the law clerk that was down there ready to do whatever law clerk thing needed to be done. But I got a chance to see Chris in trial day in and day out through the course of that summer. And you know, Chris is one of the great trial lawyers in the United States. And it was really just such a great learning experience and so inspirational. Can you tell us about how you transitioned into becoming a lawyer? What kind of work did you do in the summers and then coming out of law school? So the, the you know, the, I did the two summers worth of working, uh, one at the insurance defense firm and then for Searcy Denny and then graduated. Um, and then coming out of law school, I started with an insurance defense firm, Walton Lantaff, and uh, started in West Palm Beach and then moved to, Miami, to the Miami office, the main office. And I got really lucky. You know, sometimes it's uh, being in the right place at the right moment. And what happened was that the, they had the team set up with a partner, a senior associate, a junior associate. And then shortly after I joined, the, the senior associate in my team left the firm. And so her caseload fell into my lap. And so within that first you know, year to 14 months, I got to try over 20 civil trials. Um, don't know that I really knew what I was doing at the time, but it was a baptism by fire and I learned so much and I learned that I loved it. And did you stay with that firm for several years or what did you do then? I was there for a couple of years. And then as often happens, a plaintiff lawyer that I had a case against uh, when the case was over, offered me the opportunity to go there and, and it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. And so I became partners uh, with Pat Ford down in Miami and um, we were together for seven years uh, doing nursing home cases and medical malpractice cases and having a great time helping people out. And it was uh, a great experience. Is there one case that you remember when you were starting out in the first few years where you realized that being a trial lawyer was something you just loved and you had maybe a really good result and you really connected with the jury? Sure. Um, you know, there, there are a couple of cases uh, that stand out. One of the hard things, I think, for us as trial lawyers, or at least for me, is I... I obsess over my losses uh, way more than I celebrate the victories that I've had uh, in my career. And so uh, those tend to dominate for me the thinking because even 10, 15, 20 years later, I'll wake up at night thinking, oh, if I'd only done this, if I only had done that, I, I could have changed the outcome uh, of the case. But shortly after I became a plaintiff's lawyer, and this was kind of at the very beginning of nursing homework, uh, becoming prevalent in Florida. It was after the uh, change to Chapter 400. And we had a case where our client, uh, her husband was 65 years old. He had premature dementia. She would go visit him every day and sit with him and, and make sure he was eating and all of that. And they had two daughters that lived up in New York. And uh, they, both of the daughters were going to give birth within a month or so of each other. So the mom's going to go up there to be with them. So she takes a picture of her husband, their dad, to show them, look how wonderful he's doing. And then she comes back, you know, six weeks later, and he had lost in that time period about 50 pounds. They just weren't feeding him. And she took another picture. So we had this before picture and this after picture. And so we filed the lawsuit. And I remember, you know, whatever the, the original hearing was on some discovery issue. And I'm explaining the case to the judge like that. And then I put the two pictures in front of the judge and the judge went, ah, like that. And so then the defense lawyer was like, he didn't have to show those pictures to the judge. And I was like, oh, I absolutely did have to show those pictures to the judge. Uh, and then, you know, as we got into the depositions, I remember taking the deposition of the uh, 
director uh, at the facility. And she had come on board in the middle of the care that was being given. And she did not realize that the bad care had happened in the nursing home. She thought it had happened elsewhere. And so she actually reported it uh, to Aka. And so I'm taking her deposition and going through this stuff and talking about, you know, how whoever was responsible for this deserved to be punished. It was horrific. And yes, yes, yes. And then I start showing her that indeed it had all happened at the nursing home and not elsewhere. And she started crying. And I'm like, you know, you're crying. She said, yes. I said, you're crying because you've realized that it is your company that was responsible for this. Yes. And it's your company that should be punished. Yes. Um, so that, that was kind of a, a breakthrough moment for me. And, uh, you know, where you really, where things really started to come together uh, on the plaintiff's side. And then, you know, doing those nursing home cases early on, there was a facility down in Miami that I had a bunch of cases against where there were uh, just pressure sore after pressure sore after pressure sore. And then what happened was the, the nursing home said, this is crazy. And so they developed a pressure sore task force to help identify at-risk patients in my cases against them dried up. And like, isn't that exactly what we're supposed to be doing? Making the world a safer, better place, right? All of our cases are about two things, the narrow justice for our family that was hurt, injured, or, or had something bad happen to their loved one. And then there's the greater societal good where hopefully people are changing behavior uh, so that we don't have to bring these lawsuits. Thank you. That is very good what you did in trying to help people by, by getting defendants to try to change their, their actions. And thanks for the information about your growing up. And the reason why I kind of ask these questions about your growing up is I have young children. My son is a sophomore in high school. So I just kind of wanted to get some ideas about how you transitioned from growing up into becoming a lawyer or how you grew into being a trial lawyer. It sounds like you had many trials in the beginning and it gave you a lot of experience and that just really helped you along the way. It, it did. It was, it was um, really, like I said, I, I just get, fell into this great opportunity where I got to do something that a lot of folks don't get to do uh, and try a lot of cases in a short time period. And I'll tell you, you know, you, Law school, at least back then, did, in my opinion, did not do a great job in preparing us to really understand what it is that we were doing, particularly as a plaintiff's trial lawyer or involved in personal injury on either side. So you're really having to learn these things in real time, more so uh, than in law school. At least that was kind of my experience uh, back at the time. So in one of the areas that I found to be really um, it harder back then. And, you know, we didn't have the number of entities and, and groups that were out there teaching trial practice that we have these days. Uh, and so uh, learning how to pick a jury was one of those things that took a little bit longer uh, for me than the other aspects of the case. I don't know if you felt that same experience in your career. Can you tell us what you're doing now? You have a firm in Palm Beach or West Palm Beach, Dominic Cunningham Yaffa. Can you tell us what kind of firm that is, how many lawyers you have, and what kind of practice areas your firm focuses in on? Sure, absolutely. So our firm does, uh, I do a lot of medical malpractice cases, a lot of nursing home cases, a lot of cases involving defective products. Uh, my partners, Fred Cunningham and Greg Yaffa, uh, are um, among the best, if not the best, bad faith lawyers uh, in Florida. So a lot of insurance coverage, any catastrophic injury type uh, of cases. My partner, Nicole Krugel, has probably tried 10 medical malpractice cases with me where she's been co-first chair. So I'm really proud of the fact that somebody at her age has gotten the opportunity to try as many cases as she has. 
We get to try cases all across the country, which is really uh, a great experience. Can you tell us about one or two of your bigger cases? I know you had a malpractice case where maybe they didn't diagnose cancer timely, maybe a breast cancer case, and you had a very big verdict. And I'm sure you've had other verdicts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, but that was a case involving misread pap smears. And I don't know if you've had this experience where your career kind of goes in these sort of stages and all of a sudden you get involved in one type of case and that seems to dominate for a while. Then you get into another type of case and that dominates for a while. So uh, what happened was I got this case that was referred to me for a woman with cervical cancer. And the question was presented was, what happened? How did the gynecologist possibly miss this? And so then as we dug down into the case and uh, looked at it more, we realized that it wasn't the gynecologist that was uh, the problem, that it was um, the uh, pap smears had been misread. And then as we get into it deeper, what is it that we learn? We learned that some of these big box uh, healthcare companies were, are having their people read too many slides in a day. And there's not enough time to be able to do the job the way that they're supposed to do. And in fact, in cross-examination at the trial, it was really funny because, you know, sometimes, again, it's about taking advantage of an opportunity that presents itself. And so they had brought the, the uh, tech who had done the initial read on the slide to trial to try and humanize her in front of the jury. And she starts telling this story and she talks about how she was at another place and how they had this long to read the slide in this place and how long and, and like the five watt light bulb went off. So I start doing the math on the back of my, my trial notepad and I realized, aha, what was going on? Because we're always trying to figure out why did somebody who was trained properly and that we believe generally didn't wake up that day saying, I want to hurt somebody. And so you always are trying to figure out how could that person make this horrible mistake? And, and so then it turned out that way. So I'm, I get back up, I get up from my cross-examination and I start to, to go through the time with her. The defense objects uh, saying that I'm forcing her to do math uh, on there. The judge sustains it. So then I said to her, okay, I want you to assume that there are 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour. The jury started laughing uh, at it. And at the end of the day, she said, my last question was, the truth of the matter is you don't have enough time to do your job properly or something like that. And her answer was, well, if your math is correct, then you are right. And I said, well, do you know any reason why my math would not be correct? And she was, of course, said no. Um, and, and so that was sort of an aha moment. And I've had many cases involving misread pap smears uh, since then, and it has been uh, repetitive in terms of determining why that has happened. And, uh, you know, we're fighting, as always, to change that. Uh, that's what we want to do, is to, to change behavior. And there's a, but, you know, still we have over 10,000 women a year who are dying from cervical cancer, and they shouldn't be. And what kind of verdict did you get in that case, Sean? That case was a $24 million verdict. Um, you know, sometimes our best job, our best thing we do is kind of get out of the way and let the facts really explain. But um, we had a tremendous amount of video and uh, the woman who had, had died. And um, most of the time she was on the, not, not on the, the camera side, she was the one that was doing the video in, and she was always saying to her daughters, mommy loves you, mommy loves you, mommy loves you. And so we had done it, we had created a clip um, for rebuttal that was just a montage of mommy loves you, mommy loves you, mommy loves you. Um, and even, even today, thinking about that, you know, it's emotional. She was 38 years old, young. That's the tragedy of these cases, that they're, um, 
women in the, in the prime of their life, usually with children, um, and death by cervical cancer uh, is an ugly way to die. Yeah, they, they, um, it, it was a case where the attitude from the defense was, you're going to have to go try this case. And uh, they filed Daubert hearings on our experts. And so I had to fly in experts from all around the country to support my experts. I spent probably $100,000 just defending the Daubert hearing. Uh, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do once you're in your case. And uh, so they just they took a very hard line attitude uh, about what it was they were going to do. And, um, you know, I guess they found out. Was that a, a case where they offered you a lot, you and your client, a lot of money before a trial? Or was that a case that they didn't offer a lot of money before a trial? Yeah. They, they never made an offer that made my client think. And I don't know about you, but, you know, our clients, in my experience, rarely turn down reasonable offers. Uh, and what we end up getting big verdicts because, in my experience, the defense just sort of keeps compounding the mistakes and never catches up to where it is that they need to be and never makes our clients really think about a downside. And uh, I tell my clients most of the time that if the money that they're offering isn't going to make a significant long-term difference in your life, then you really don't have anything to really think about. Uh, we, you know, you ha we have to go forward because getting a year's reprieve for brain injured child just isn't going to do it. We have to take care of that child for 80 years. Are there any other big cases that you've been involved in? Other than that, you mentioned a bunch of misdiagnosed cancer cases. Are there any other really big cases that you can maybe tell us about? Sure. You know, one of the areas that we've been doing a lot of cases in right now is failure to diagnose stroke. Um, it, it's epidemic how many stroke cases are missed. And it's really a tragedy because uh, the treatment for stroke has advanced so much in the last eight to 10 years uh, compared to where it was before then. And now uh, proper recognition that somebody's having a stroke and treatment, treatment usually within six to eight hours, but as far out as 24 hours in some circumstances, dramatically changes the outcome uh, in these cases. But time and time again, we're getting cases where emergency room doctors are, and emergency room healthcare providers are not recognizing stroke. They're saying, oh, this person just is, is has smoked marijuana, or this person is um, suffering from some sort of mental uh, disorder or something like that, despite having obvious signs and symptoms uh, of stroke. So those are cases that we have been uh, working on quite a bit and uh, have been uh, successful in helping our clients out. And again, the, the question is about are we able to get ourselves in a position where uh, the defendant, where the, the defendants are offering an amount of money that is going to change uh, change lives? Thank you. That's interesting. I've heard about a drug that you can give someone for a stroke, but I think that treatment has changed even more than that over the last few years. Yeah, certainly for folks. Uh, who are in our age bracket, uh, you know, the, something happened in the mid nineties that was transformative and TPA came on the market. And that was a drug that could be objected uh, and it would dissolve hopefully the clot. It had some risks with it of causing bleeding. Uh, and it also had a very narrow window for when it could be administered from the time of the stroke up until when it, it would still be effective of just a few hours. Now, what happened in, in back at the end of 2015, 2016, they had always been trying to uh, develop 
techniques that would allow them to go in and pull the clot out, uh, go up through, stick a catheter in, go up through a, a vein or an artery and, and pull it out. And they had not been successful. They were running several trials at the same time. And the success of the trials was so much that they had to stop the trials because it was unethical to continue them and to, to deprive people of this, this treatment that was showing uh, so good. And so since then, that treatment as skill has gotten better and um, uh, technology has gotten better, that treatment is getting better and better outcomes uh, with it. The advent of MRI technology that has developed uh, is allowing us to times the start of strokes better because one of the big problems in stroke world is folks who wake up with deficits. And so it's hard to tell when the stroke started. Uh, and so that was always a, a problem with giving TPA. In the world of what we call thrombectomy, that becomes less important because now we can tell through the use of technology. And we're even moving into a world where uh, rural hospitals that may not have a neurosurgeon or a neuroradiologist present, that they're going to be able to do that remotely where they'll have a, a on-site healthcare provider run the catheter and then they'll, the, the, neuro, the neurosurgeon from afar will then be able to manage it and, and remove the clot. So the technology is moving very quickly in such a great way. And I'm always amazed at medicine about the, how transformative it can be. But none of that matters if people on the front end aren't recognizing that somebody's having a stroke and activating the stroke protocol. What would be some symptoms of someone potentially having a stroke? Sure. So uh, often it, it is speech uh, is one of the first things that we go. Asymmetry, where uh, one side of your body uh, isn't moving as well as the other side of the body. Uh, asymmetry and strength uh, are the types of things. So you hear about things like fast, which is face, and some somebody will have you smile, and if you can't smile properly, that's a sign of it. And then A is the asymmetry, uh, and S is strength. So those are some of the very basic things that we're looking at, or S is speech uh, as well. So those are the things we're looking at. Thank you, Sean. And you are, I believe, the current president of the AAJ. Can you tell our listeners what is the AAJ, what do they do, and also thank you for serving as president? Oh, well, I appreciate that. Sure. The American Association for Justice is the largest nationwide group of trial lawyers. It is the only entity in Washington, D.C. that is dedicated to protecting the Seventh Amendment, the right to trial by jury, our practices, and the people that we represent. Um, you know, I grew up uh, starting doing things at the state level with the Florida Justice Association, then the Academy of Florida Trial Lawyers, and then moved on to the national uh, stage. And, and, you know, nobody told us when we were in law school that we were going to have to spend our lives fighting just to be able to do our jobs, right? We all thought, hey, look at the Seventh Amendment. It's a constitutional right to trial by jury. And then you find out, well, maybe they don't think that that means what you and I think uh, that that means. And so, as you know, in legislatures across the country, in the capital of Washington, D.C., we are constantly in the struggle to ensure that people have meaningful access to justice. Uh, and that includes the ability to get into court and the ability to get the full measure of damages uh, that they've suffered. So those are you know, that, that's the, the battle, the existential battle that we've been fighting. One of the, the other great things about AAJ is our education uh, is tremendous. It's such a, a, you know, an adjunct to what it is that the states are able to do uh, with that. We do deposition colleges. We have a jury research arm uh, that is constantly doing updated jury research uh, to help uh, explain to people what we're seeing in terms of trends and how that's going to affect your jurors, their biases, uh, and their perceptions. Uh, we did we do new lawyer boot camps to try and introduce new lawyers into uh, the practice so that they can understand what it is that's, that's going on. We've got a, a new seminar that's coming up in October 
called the Boss Seminar in Vermont, which is for people who run law firms, because we, we didn't have classes in law school that said, hey, here's how to run a law firm. So we're going to talk about some of the issues that matter to people who are running law firms. Very, very busy. I've, uh, I became president in July, and I have been on the road probably 45 of the days since I became uh, president. But, you know, I love it. I love getting the opportunity to meet people. I have met people not just across the country, uh, but across the world who are dedicated to the same fight that we are fighting. And uh, so that is really wonderful to meet these people that I never otherwise would have had a, a chance to meet. And I get to go around and attend conferences in different states and get to see what lawyers there are doing on issues. And I always learn something, which is wonderful. So I, I'm having a great time doing it. Can you tell us what part of a trial do you think is most important? Well, I think mean, jury selection is the most important part of any trial. Uh, you can lose a, a trial in jury selection. And, and sort of the thing I always talk to is, you know, if I had a jury full of Sean Hannity's and I represented Hillary Clinton, there's no way that I could possibly win that trial, no matter what the facts are. So it is so important to make sure that you have jurors that are open to hearing what it is that you have to present. If they're already shut down, uh, you can be there for two weeks, three weeks, it just doesn't matter. So really it's about uh, picking a jury uh, that can be receptive and open. When you pick a jury, do you kind of try to create a tribe and not try to strike a lot of potential jurors or do you structure your jury selection so that you can try to strike a lot of potential jurors for cause challenges? I, I'd say it's somewhere in between those. I think both of those things are really, really important. Um, I think that creating a connection with your jurors and helping them connect with each other is really, really, really important uh, in our cases. And so you want to have that happen, but you also have to figure out, that, like I said, that particularly in this polarized day and age, that there are people that you're just not going to be able to bring into the group and aren't going to be open. So, uh, but that being said, like I think most jurors and most people understand what it is that's going on. And most of them will ultimately be honest. And so like, I try not to pound on the jurors the way I sometimes see some folks doing when they're trying to get a the cause thing. And, and, you know, I'll talk to a juror about whatever the issue is that we're dealing with. And then I'll say something like, well, you know, I represent Mr. Smith, the plaintiff in this case, who I'm going to be asking for millions of dollars. And you've just said that you have trouble with that. Do you know why I'm a little bit concerned? And the juror always say, yeah. I'll say, tell me why I'm concerned. And they'll articulate it for us. They know, they get it. And, and then they say, and am I right to be concerned? And they'll say, generally they'll say yes. And then I'll say something like, do you think that given that, you know, that this is not the right jury for you and we ought to find another one where that issue may not come into play? And they'll say yes. And so now you don't have to face the judge or somebody saying that I put words in somebody's mouth because they are the ones that have given it to us. So I think being open, being honest with them, respecting their intelligence and their understanding of what it is that we're trying to accomplish, because they know, they get it. They know, they've seen enough TV uh, about it. Uh, so I, I, I think that, it, I think there's a, a middle ground uh, for us to utilize in terms of bringing people together, but still identifying those people that, that just can't be the right juror on that case. You mentioned the word connect with the jury, with your jury selection. Can you tell us how you try to connect with the jury? Is it eye contact? Or how do you try to connect with the potential jurors in jury selection? Well, I, you try to do it in so many different ways. Uh, it's eye contact. It is um, honesty, vulnerability. 
uh, with them. It's it's like okay if you make a mistake, then then like own that you've made a mistake. They're, they're forgiving. Um, I, I was trying a case uh, up in Orlando several years ago, a medical malpractice case, and one of the jurors who um, ultimately didn't end up serving on the jury, but they sent me an email and saying that. Uh, how much they appreciated that whenever a juror would share something that was painful or hard or, or something that had happened with them, that I acknowledged it, respected it, listened to it, and that the lawyer on the other side just ran over it and didn't bother listening to it. So, you know, you're asking people to talk about things in an environment that they're not used to talking about, that they probably don't want to talk about in front of people that they don't know. So you have to start with that thought. And then one of the other things that I try to do that I that I somebody had told me about doing is feeling like you are holding the hand of the juror that you are talking to. Obviously, we can't actually physically do it, but if you're talking to somebody and you feel like you're holding their hand, your voice modulates, you soften, all of those things happen uh, for you and uh, you just sort of feel it. And, and when, as you practice that, you feel yourself going in and out of that connection uh, with the juror. So there are a lot of things, and there are a lot of folks that are out there helping teach techniques with regard to how do you connect with the jury? How do you bring them together? How do you use your hand motion? How do you make eye contact uh, with jurors in a way that is appropriate but connective? And people have to practice. You know, people aren't trying as many cases as they used to. And, and so if you're only trying a case a year or a case every two years, you've got to practice the craft. So I do it in a lot of different ways. But I'd say one is uh, that we work here in the office and I'll bring lunch in for my staff. And I'll just say, here's an issue in a case. And then I'll talk to people about it like I'm picking a jury uh, or I'll Practice a little piece of an opening statement uh, that we have to do. You can bring people in off of Craigslist uh, and do that and get really good feedback, but it is a matter of practicing in front of other people. You've got to practice the craft. What about opening statement? What kind of style do you have? And what kind of suggestions do you have for people to do a very good opening statement? So... You know, I've, I've, I've seen opening statements where people get up and start arguing from the beginning. And I think that that's a, a mistake. Um, we, facts don't win cases, but it's the story that we tell with the facts that win the cases. So what is the story that threads the facts together that you want to do? So, you, you know, that you have to work on that. And you have to, like, if you go to Hollywood and look at how they present things. They do storyboards with pictures to tell their story. And then they move the pictures around to tell the story in different fashions and starting at different points. So where do we want to start to tell our story? What do we want to do about it? And, you know, you have these different viewpoints on opening statement today. Some folks that talk about, you know, right away, I want to jump in and focus on what the defendant did wrong. I don't want to talk about the plaintiff uh, until we've really uh, muddied the defendant in this case, and they're now ready to uh, receive the plaintiff. There are other folks that talk about, well, if going back to Hollywood, that if you look at what happens in Hollywood, most movies introduce a character for you to care about and then have something bad happen to them, and then it's two hours of redemption uh, that goes on. So I think that there is no one size fits all. Each case can lend itself to that particular case. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we got to prove that somebody did something wrong. And cases are what you focus on. So we gotta, we've got to really do that. But at the same time, you know, what I see happen a lot in cases is we get so caught up in uh, talking about what went wrong that we forget to talk about the damages and we short shrift the damages. And I think that sometimes our verdicts suffer because we don't do what we need to do uh, on the damages side. But I think the question is, if 
for opening, tell a story. Take your time, use facts. Later on, there'll be a time for argument, but just move your story forward in a way that you think connects with people. And what I see a lot is most of our, most lawyers, during the course of the case, they'll be out with friends at dinner or with their family or with other lawyers, and they'll say, somebody will say, tell me about a case you're working on. And they'll tell the synopsis of the case and the, everybody will say, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Blah, 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 blah. Then they get in front of the jury and they stiffen up and they forget to tell that story that they've been telling for the last two years that makes everybody go, oh my gosh. How do you usually start an opening statement? Do you usually start with rules or do you start with a story or do you start with something else? I, I think... Like I said, I, I don't have a usual way when it comes to that. I really try to work on each case uh, to make its determination of, of what it is that I want to do. It's a product, a lot of focus grouping. And what is it? What's the feedback I'm getting on the way that I'm telling this story? But I do think it is important very early on. I, I, don't, think that it, I don't think that you need to spend at the start of your opening a bunch of time on your client. I think I do think that is a mistake. I do think that you can present somebody to the jury that they're going to embrace and want to help. Uh, but then I do think that transitioning into to rules and why those rules are important and what happens when people break those rules and, and then what happened in this case uh, is an important early part of your opening. You mentioned damages and your cancer case, and you had a multi-million dollar verdict. Can you maybe give us some suggestions on how you created or argued the damages, and then maybe how you argued for damages in your closing? Did you use an hourly rate? Did you use stories like a Picasso painting? Or how did you argue for multi-million dollar damages? Well, as you know, in this day and age, some of those comparisons create difficulties for us on appeal. Uh, so you have to be really, really careful about it. I think that damages, more than an argument, are us developing the damages during the course of the presentation of the trial which requires us to focus on damages from early on. Let me give you an example. In a wrongful death case, uh, you know, we always say to our, the survivors, you know, send us pictures, send us video, whatever it is that you have. They give it to us and I look at it. Then I go to their house because I want to see what it is that they couldn't bring themselves to share, what they couldn't bring themselves to look at and why uh, and why that is. And so, uh, you know, you've got to build your damages and not just talk to family and, and all that. Where did they work? Let's go talk to the people at work. They're going to give us a different viewpoint on who that person was. And you might hear some great stories you might not otherwise hear. So it's a lot of legwork that you have to do to develop it. Oftentimes what I'll do uh, with survivors, because most jurors don't want to hear a survivor get up there, just break down and say, I miss this person. I miss this person. I miss this person. It's, it's, um, even though it's all true, it's disconnective. And so what I'll ask my clients to do is, is I'll get up there with pictures and video. Uh, I'll say, you know, I asked you to get pictures and video that were meaningful to you. Um, and you know, let's go through some of those. And I want you to tell me the stories behind why those are meaningful. And so they'll sit up there for a couple of hours and tell the story of their life with that person in video or, or pictures that were on there, whatever it might be. And throughout the course of that, there will be moments where they will smile, they will laugh, and they will cry. And it's so natural and it's so human. And you are demonstrating to the jury that true connection that was there because in order to measure what was lost, you have to know what was there. And so uh, I think it is incumbent upon us to make sure that we are fully getting the evidence to develop the story that allows us in closing to talk about uh, what the numbers are. And there are times 
where I have clients that I have trouble breaking through to. And so there are folks that you can hire that are psychologists that will help work with your, your clients and help bring out the story uh, sometimes. And we're really busy, right? We're all very busy. And so, but like you have got to develop that component. You've got to develop the evidence because without evidence, it makes it really hard uh, to make arguments. You know, some, sometimes I can, I talk about hourly rates. Um, I tend to just um, talk in uh, length of time and, you know, some cases, short time period, short injury, that might be worth this amount of money. This case, longest time, baby brain injury case, worst injury, longest period of time, and, and utilize numbers uh, based off of that. Often in rebuttal, I will then break it down more specifically. I might do an hourly rate uh, type of thing uh, in rebuttal, but generally in my first part of my opening, I will ask for numbers. But I think like if you are, say it's a personal injury case, as opposed to a death case, you can't just talk about pain and suffering. There are how many elements of human damages available in a personal injury case, right? It's, it's pain, it's suffering, it's disability, it's disfigurement, loss of capacity for the enjoyment of life. So you have to use, what, is it, what, is, what are your jury instructions in your verdict form? That creates your structure. And then why is it, what is disability, lack of ability? This person that can no longer uh, walk down the street or whatever it might be, that they, that's their disfigurement. They've got this scar on their face. And think about how when you're a teenager and you have a pimple on your forehead and, and your world ends because you think everybody's looking at it, even though nobody else could see it. And, and this is a billion times uh, that it's never going to go away and everybody actually can see it. And so I think that breaking down the different elements of damages and figuring out how to make your arguments within it uh, is something that we don't do often enough. Do you use a lot of demonstratives in your opening and closing? Do you use pictures, PowerPoints, graphs, or how do you usually use demonstratives, if at all? Yeah, I, I use demonstratives as much as I possibly can. Particularly in this day and age, people want to see pictures. It's how they're used to getting things done. Um, you know, PowerPoint as a tool I utilize, but you know, one of one of the things I always say is like if PowerPoint were the best way to communicate with human beings, Jesus would have had it at the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, he instead, what was used? Analogies stories that connect with everybody's experiences. So I'm always trying to come up with analogies, metaphors, things like that, that take things that may be abstract to connect with uh, the jurors that we have in their life experiences, because that's uh, truly important for us. But that being said, absolutely. I, wanted, I want to communicate with the jury in as many different mediums and forms as I possibly uh, can what you have to be careful about with PowerPoint is putting up some 67 slide PowerPoint with words on it, where you as the lawyer are just reading the words off of the PowerPoint. Nobody enjoys that. So the PowerPoint ought to be uh, generally like pictures that represent something that then you are able to talk about. Uh, with it might have one word on it or whatever it might be. Um, and then that, and, and that, the great thing about that as well, and the great thing about the use of demonstratives is that helps me structure my argument without the need for notes. Cause I know each one triggers what it is that I want to say, uh, about it. So the use of, of those, uh, demonstratives are tremendously helpful in that fashion. Thank you. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you try to take care of yourself? Do you exercise, diet, try to eat good? What do you do to try to stay healthy? Yeah, it's, you know, particularly with as much as I travel and I'm at these conferences, 
That, that's a, something that I really try to pay close attention to, is trying to stay as healthy as I possibly can. Uh, I'm a Peloton guy. I, I have a Peloton bike and a Peloton treadmill at home. And then uh, on the road, I use the app and I work out uh, to it every day, no matter where I am, even if I can't get to down to the gym at the hotel, there are 20 and 30 minute body weight things that you can do in your hotel room. Uh, so I try to work out every day and it makes me feel better. It releases the stress. It allows me to be outside of all of business and all of that for an hour every single day. Uh, food. Yeah. I, I try to eat well when I can eat well, but there, you know, I'm not maniacal about it. I enjoy eating. I, eating to me is part of the joy of life. Uh, but everything in moderation. And I think one of the things that I've learned is like at, at the lawyer conferences, I have a hard and fast rule. I am in bed by midnight because what I've learned is there's no 1215 or 1230. If you're not in bed by midnight, then it's three or three 30 in the morning. <laughs> and I can't do that. <laughs> Thank you. How would someone reach out to you if they wanted to contact you regarding a case? Can you tell us maybe your website, phone number, or contact information? The website is pbglaw.com. So uh, P is in pool, B is in boy, G is in gardens. So pbglaw.com. Uh, my email is Sean, S-E-A-N, at pbglaw.com. And our phone number is 561-625-6260. Happy to talk to anybody about anything uh, that they need help with. Thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate you coming on and good luck with everything. Thank you for listening to Your Injury Lawyer podcast with our special guest today, Sean Dominic. We would appreciate it if you could show your interest in this podcast by subscribing as well as leaving a five-star review. Thank you very much.